Phil Collins is the uh, great songwriter, lead singer, and drummer of the band Genesis from the 80s. And uh, I heard an interview with him one time on writing song writing songs. It was actually more than an interview. They they had somebody who was trying to become a songwriter, who was asking uh, asking questions to somebody. And they surprised this person by getting Phil Collins on the line and, and giving some advice on songwriting. His advice was very simple. It was, it was that most people try to do too much in their songwriting. They, uh, they make the lyrics too complicated and people can't follow them, especially for a pop song. Now, the Bible isn't uh, a, pi- a, a pop song, nor is it simple in its construction. In fact... Uh, one of my favorite sections of the Bible to preach from is the wisdom literature because it deals with the intricacies of life. If you look at the uh, book of Psalms, it's also getting into the depths and the broad range of life experiences that we we have and the, the answers that are oftentimes given, especially in spiritual circles and in, in churches, are oversimplified explanations of life. They don't capture the, uh, the, the real life experiences that so many of us encounter. And so we compartmentalize our faith. We say, well, the faith, our faith answers these certain sections of life, but I, I'm fine to not deal with these other sections. I'm just going to put them in two different boxes, and then I'll figure this stuff out later. And, and at times that's necessary. There are things about God that are just too much to understand. He reveals himself gradually over time. But there are other things that we do need to continue to grow into. Now, why do I open with that? It's because when we come to the book of Exodus, we actually come to something that's a little bit simpler in some ways. It's a story of God rescuing a people who are in bondage to slavery and moving them out and giving them a freedom. The language of sin and slavery to sin and salvation, these spiritual sounding words that a lot of people say just have no place for us anymore. The concepts of good and evil, they have no place for us anymore are presented in the story of Exodus in their simplicity so that we understand that those things have a place in life. And we need to come back to some of those things that seem simple, but really are the most profound things in all of life. Sin and salvation, deliverance from one thing into another, the evil that is around us. We need to be faced with this reality, but we need to understand that the The concept of evil, Christopher just prayed wonderfully in his prayer, the concept of evil that we often associate is associated with certain people or people groups rather than the work of God's enemy, our enemy, that is the Satan, the accuser, and his influence over God's creation. All of us need to be able to identify with the sinful nature, the need to be rescued out of our own sinful nature and move to something else. We've talked about why we're studying the book of Exodus and what purpose it has in salvation and our understanding of the scriptures. And one of the things 
that we need to see from the book of Exodus is that in Exodus, if you've read through Exodus, you're familiar with the story that begins with really, to use language that uh, our kids use, especially when they're younger, epic. It's an epic story of God's deliverance. It's a movie-worthy kind of story for the first few chapters, dozen, and then a few more. And then after God gives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, you come to chapter 25, and until for the next 15 chap- 16 chapters, 25 to 40, it seems like the story almost comes to a halt because then all of a sudden it's architectural design and interior design of a tabernacle. And most of us in our, our typical reading patterns get bored with that. We may not even read that, but, but the book of Exodus wasn't just combined because the two different parts were too short each to, to make in their own book. They were, they were designed with a purpose, and that is that when we're rescued from slavery, when a people is rescued from slavery, the, the people are rescued from slavery they move where? They don't just move to freedom, I can do whatever I want to. I think that's oftentimes what we consider freedom from slavery to be, or freedom in general is I can do what I want to. But, but the book of Exodus shows something very different. Where do they move when they go from slavery? You can say, oh, well, they went to the wilderness. That's great. Not too much more freedom. But, but no, they go someplace else. The wilderness is just a temporary landing place. And even in the wilderness, immediately, what does God provide for them? It's a place to worship. It's detailed instructions on where to worship and how to worship. It's the design of the tabernacle that's going to sit right in the center of their camp, wherever they move to. Because here's the point of Exodus, that when we are freed from one thing, we are always going to find something else to worship. We're we're people that are designed to worship. It's it's in our, our body, our heart, our DNA. We worship things. And what what does that mean? We worship things. It means we look to something else to satisfy our deepest desires. This takes many forms. We may worship, uh, you know, exercise. I noticed there was an exercise class before earlier today. It may still be going on. We worship our work and our performance at our work or, or, or the performance of other people in the world. We worship other people and we emulate uh, uh, stars or, or famous people or certain situations. We worship um, a, a comfort. We just want to be comfortable and have people not tell us what to do or have material possessions or have material security or, or, or maybe we even worship our families and we look to other people and our families to meet our deepest needs. And, and the, the way you can tell that you're worshiping something is that you're looking to them to satisfy something. And, and the way you can tell that it's something that, that can't bear the weight of your worship is that it's consistently disappointing you. And you get frustrated. 
And sometimes we even do this this with God and the the symbol that we're worshiping the wrong thing when we're doing this with God is that we're not worshiping the right God. We're worshiping an idol of our own construction. And this is at the heart of Exodus and the warning of the wilderness is that our hearts, is that our hearts in the words of John Calvin, a reformer, preacher, teacher, pastor, our hearts are idol factories. And we think of idols being these carven statues of false gods that that no one makes anymore but used to. But our hearts are still constantly carving idols. And sometimes we think, oh, this represents God or this is God himself. And we find this even in the wilderness. The Israelites go out in the wilderness and one of the first things they do is they get Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them a, a, a statue of a bull or a young bull out of gold and it's not just that they're worshiping the bull the the bull was meant to symbolize God's power the God who rescues them out of this slavery in Egypt to symbolize God's power but God had just told them don't create these images that represent me because they lead you to believe false things about me So we study Exodus to realize that our freedom leads us to worship. And the second part of Exodus or the the end part of Exodus is showing us how we're supposed to worship God. Who God is, what he's done, and how we should worship him. We always go to worship. Now let's go and look at this story that, uh, that Mandy read earlier. And it continues with chapter 1. It was the end of chapter 1, and the story goes together. It's a, it's a story it, before the story. It's a story that has a lot of parallels to the rest of the book of Exodus. Moses is drawn out of the water, and God draws the nation of Israel out of Egypt, the slavery, and even through the water of the Red Sea symbolically. And what does the Red Sea do after God gives them the ability to pass through? It crashes down and ironically kills all those soldiers that are pursuing, the Egyptian soldiers that are pursuing them. It's a microcosm still of even an even greater story, and that is the story of what Jesus does to rescue us out of our sin and 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 the water symbolizing the place of death throughout the ancient world and even still today when we talk about water water symbolizes oftentimes death but it also is transformed into this symbol of life when we come to the new testament with the washing of water for baptism but for the ancient world the people feared the water when they went to sea or went out on ships the water was a dangerous place when the disciples are with Jesus and the storm comes up on the waters they freak out because they're scared of the water they know that the water is a tomb it's a grave for so many people because the seas are unpredictable and they're dangerous but throughout throughout the book of Exodus water comes up over and over again it's the the lifeblood of the nation of Egypt, the Nile River. It's the place where Pharaoh says, go and cast all these babies out. Pharaoh could have said, kill the babies in any number of ways, but he says, throw them in the Nile. We come to the 10 plagues that we'll look at over and over again. The water comes into play, whether it's animals that live in the water or the water turning to blood itself. 
the Red Sea as a barrier. And even once the wilderness wandered, the Israelites cross over the Red Sea, water is still an issue. They don't have it. They want it. Moses gets angry, he strikes a rock. Over and over again, water comes up. And the deliverance of that is, 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 is there. Here are the three things that I want us to look at today. They're going to, uh, we'll have navigate through the story. The first thing is the miracle of this story of, of God delivering Moses from the water of the Nile. The miracle of the story. We can't look past that because uh, it really is amazing what God does in this story. The second thing I, I want us to look at is the women in the story. The women in the story. It's shocking to see what God does with the women in this story and how Moses records the story when he's writing the story as it's been passed down to him and how the women are at the heart, the core of this particular story. It was part of the reason I wanted Mandy to read this story instead of um, me or even Christopher here this morning is because the women play such a central role in the story. And the last thing is to consider what I alluded to earlier, and that is the symbolism that the story has that points us to something greater, and I've already revealed what that is, and that is what Jesus does on our behalf uh, that's related a, a, a greater version of, of this story. First thing, the miracle of the story. I said last week that the king of Egypt and the people of Egypt had grown afraid of the the Israelite people who had multiplied over just a few generations, even though Egypt had done its best to subdue the people, to oppress the people. They gave them more and more work, and yet still God, it says, God multiplied their numbers. They grown to over a million strong, and Egypt was afraid that they might rise up and join with their enemies if somebody else brought war against them. And so Pharaoh comes up with a plan to, to kill the male babies. We looked at last week that this was more than just a cruel thing to do to the children or a cruel thing to do to the families or even to suppress the population. This was more than just genocide. It was eliminating the, uh, the identity of the Israelite people. Because with no male children, no males to marry the women, they would have the women and the rest of the whole culture would have just been assimilated into the Egyptian culture. It was cruel. But the midwives, the midwives recognized that the command from Pharaoh was not to be. A, 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 adhered to and they had a greater responsibility and that was to God and so they refused to do his his bidding and so Pharaoh Pharaoh recognizing that the midwives weren't going to do it the Israelites weren't going to do it it says that he commanded his own people verse 22 then Pharaoh commanded his people the Egyptians that every son that is born to the Hebrews you should cast into the Nile but let every daughter live. And so here, Moses' mother, who's named in chapter 6, we don't see it until chapter 6, but Jochebed decides that she will not obey this command from Pharaoh. And for three months, she hides the baby away. Now, anybody who's had a baby or anybody who's been around babies at all knows 
that in a community that is probably not very rural, it's, they're living in close quarters, it is almost impossible for this to come off. I would suggest that it is impossible to hide a baby effectively for three months. But right here, God is showing His miraculous power, His ability to protect not just Moses, not just the family, Jochebed, but to protect His plan of salvation. The story is told not just because uh, it's, it's the gre- greatest story of a, a rescuing of a child. It's told because through Moses, God delivers the people. And even now, especially now, God is showing that He is going to miraculously save Moses. Now, we don't know how many people died in this genocidal uh, uh, work of of the king. But we do know that God preserves his plan of salvation through Moses by saving this child. Moses' mother and probably father and, and others around come up with a plan when three months had passed and they could hide the baby no more. Maybe they had a close encounter or maybe multiple close encounters and they realized they have to take some drastic action and so she crafts this, this boat. And it, the, the Hebrew word is actually the same word that's used to describe the ark that Noah built. It's the only two times that these two, that this word is used in the, in the whole Old Testament. This Hebrew word is to describe an ark, a, 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 an escape, an escape boat, a rescue boat. And into this ark, Jochebed places her son and doesn't just cast it out into the water, but instead puts it in the reeds near the shore in a place where she knows that people come. She can't be sure about it. And her her daughter, presumably Miriam, who we learn about later, Moses' sister, watches sees what happens, sees the daughter of the king who has issued this decree come and find the baby and has compassion. And this daughter of Pharaoh pulls the baby out of the the water. And Miriam immediately runs up to the woman, this daughter of Pharaoh, and says, "I I know somebody who can nurse the baby. And of course, it's Moses' mother, Miriam's mother, and Miriam is able, or Moses' mother is able to care for him for probably for two or three years while she continues to nurse. None of this was a surefire plan. All of this, Moses' mother and father and sister must have been looking at and saying, surely God is with us. There's no way this would have happened on our own. And that story is important to see, but I think there are a couple of other things that would have been even more standout in this story as it's told to others with the whole book of Exodus and then eventually with the whole Bible. The second point I want us to see is the role that the women play in this story. 
it's easy for us to kind of read past it and oftentimes the critique that's offered for the Bible is that's regressive and uh, treats women poorly and uh, and it um, uh, it has all these old-fashioned ways of doing things but the Bible if you read it with a knowledge of the time is really quite countercultural. It's shocking to the readers to come to this story and to find that the people who are named in this story, the two midwives, Shipra and Pua, the two midwives are named when the king of Egypt is never named in the whole book of Exodus or any place else. One of the great mysteries about Exodus is who was the Pharaoh during the time of this. Pharaoh's name would have been on everything. Pua and Shipra's name would have been on nothing. In fact, it's even more than that. You see, the people who typically were serving as midwives were people who didn't have children of their own, either because they weren't married or weren't able to find husbands, or they were married and weren't able to have children. And if you're familiar with that time in history, that would have been a mark of shame for any woman. To have children was the thing that gave you worth as a woman. And so when the midwives do this bold act of rejecting Pharaoh's command. And these midwives may have even been supervisors who were directly under the authority of some of Pharaoh's officials. The benefit, the blessing that God gives them for their obedience to God instead of Pharaoh is that they receive families of their own. They're able to have children. The story focusing on these two women in particular. These two women are the the most vivid example, but the story doesn't just highlight these two women. Moses' mother is identified as the hero, the brave, the courageous one who comes up with this plan. And while Moses' father is on the scene, he never leaves. Presumably, uh, he is is there. It's Moses' mother that's highlighted as the one who does the thing, who puts the ark in the water. And even still, as if the point hasn't been made quite yet, the last woman who directly disobeys this unjust command of Pharaoh is Pharaoh's daughter herself. And we don't know her name, but she was very familiar with the command, and yet she chooses to disobey, knowing this is a Hebrew child, sending it back to the Hebrew people with not only her blessing, probably at some risk to herself, but also with financial provisions to take care of the child. The miracle deliverance continues and is highlighted by the women in the story. This act of civil disobedience on the part of these brave, courageous women has to always be presented when we talk about our responsibility as Christians that Paul calls us to in Romans 13. This act of civil disobedience needs to be brought out when we consider the calls of Paul in Romans 13, of Peter 
in uh, in First Peter two, in other places in the Scripture, when when the, the when the the New Testament writers especially are encouraging the Christians to look at the authority, even the Romans who were sometimes oppressive, the authority in, in terms of paying taxes and respecting the authority as the authority figures having been put there by God and our responsibility to honor those who are in authority. But that honor and that obedience has limits. And the limits are when we're called to disobey God by obeying them. The limits are reached when we're called to do something that is against God's word, his command in any shape or form, not just when it rises to the level of this. In fact, what's interesting here is that sometimes people make a deal of these women presumably lying to Pharaoh, at least giving a wink and a nod. The women are are brave. They go off and have their babies before we even get there. Surely that is not entirely true. In fact, I would say it was a bold-faced lie to Pharaoh. And yet, God blesses them for telling this lie because in that lie, they are obeying God instead of Pharaoh. I said we are going to look at some of this story in light of how the, uh, the slaves, the American slaves, look to the book of Exodus as part of their hope, a central part of their hope, and how the black church throughout history has oftentimes looked to the book of Exodus in a way that the, the predominantly white church fails to. Esau Macaulay, who's written a, a very helpful book, uh, reading while black, he's uh, he's black. He's a professor at Wheaton University in uh, in in, uh, in in Illinois. Has talked about how his grandmother would skip over those passages from Romans and First Peter and the other passages that commanded slaves to obey their masters. Because they were so painful, and in part they were painful because those passages were read by the slave masters and by pastors who were called in by the slave masters when other passages like what we're reading today were completely ignored. And so, don't worry about it. They're fine. They're fine. And so, the... uh, And so when we come to issues like are being discussed in many circles today, and whether you prefer the word injustice or tyranny, if you're on one side of the political spectrum or the other, you might prefer one or the other, that both words are are, are right. When injustices or tyrannies are performed by those who are in authority, we are oftentimes called to rise up and to stand against them in various forms. Protests are defended in our Constitution rightfully because injustices are done so often. The third point that I want us to come to here after considering the miracle of the story and the women in the story is the symbolism of the story that really points us to something greater. And Tim Keller preaching through this passage helpfully points out that if we come to this passage and look to the midwives and say, I need to be courageous like the midwives, or come to this passage and just say, 
I, I need to look more hopefully to, uh, to the miracle that God did, or I need to do something better to do this, then we're going to miss the ultimate and the, pur- the ultimate purpose of this story and, the, and the, the, the primary message that is of the whole Bible. And that is, in this rescue, it's not the people of Israel who did anything to save themselves. And it's, not, it's not really Moses that did anything to save himself, even though we can commend Moses' mother and, and others who were involved in the rescue plan. But what's happening in this whole thing is that God is taking... And this word took, if you're looking at the ESV, you can notice it. The word took occurs three times in key places that it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter who takes the, uh, the, 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 the thing, the, the ark and the baby out of, out of the river. God is taking his people out of Israel, out of Egypt, and delivering them. It is God who is doing the work, who is taking these things, taking the people and delivering them. And when we come to the story of what Jesus does on our behalf, the story of the gospel is that it's God who rescues us when we're helpless babies in the water and provides for us, raises us, grows us. And if we go back to the point of, I just need to be more courageous, we're going to constantly keep coming back to this, this trouble, this struggle, that we're never courageous enough. We need to be reminded over and over again that it is God who is the one who does this for us and gives us not just strength to do the right thing, but the motivation to enter into life trusting that he is in control and has called us into his into his service into his family into his uh his his protection his provision and when we face these difficulties we can look to him to be our promise of provision to give us courage in the face of evil in the face of difficulty and whatever we face. The problem isn't that we're sitting in just a basket in the river. The problem is that in our sin, we were sitting in a place that we could not save ourselves. And the story of God delivering us from that and that he builds out in the story of his salvation, of his deliverance, all of these old-fashioned sounding words that are still so central to the Bible is not actually a simplicity It's a complexity of concepts that God communicates throughout his whole scripture so that we can understand how deep and abiding and and how, how strong the work of Jesus on the cross is on our behalf. That the work of deliverance on the cross is far superior to the work of deliverance in crossing the Red Sea or the work of showing God's power to the Israelite people when they're in slavery in Egypt through the plagues. We shouldn't be surprised when we face troubles along the way, just as the Israelites did as they came out of Egypt. We shouldn't be surprised if we face troubles in worshiping the right thing and worshiping God in the right way along the way because the people of Israel did as they were delivered as well. But we need to be constantly reminded of the path that God has put us on and that he is delivering us into, that he's continuing to build and to shape us 
into a people with that promise of the land, of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new earth, the, the removal of all sickness, sadness, death, and decay. And we can look back to the story of Exodus as a tangible example picture of God's faithfulness to deliver on his promises that he has fulfilled in Jesus and that he still set our hopes on for the life to come. And it gives us strength to live into this life even more. With that, it's a good place to end. Kind of an interesting setting here this morning. Uh, let's, uh, let me pray and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, Will you help us to live into this great story, to look to it as not just an example of what to do, but the, the strength, the fuel to, 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 to live with a courageous dependence on you, to trust the miracle of your salvation for us from sin, and to look to Jesus all the more as our hope for salvation. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.